You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. Tonight, we're going to be looking at something quite special. We're going to be looking at the 1953 Nigel Neal classic, The Quatermass Experiment. Um, This is available. This is available on DVD if you want to watch it. Uh, I would would highly recommend it um, to Sarah to the bat. And I'm going to start with a synopsis. This one's going to be a little different today, and you'll see why uh, in a bit. But uh, this is BBC 1953, Quatermass Experiment, a thriller in six parts. Part one, contact has been established. The British experimental rocket group and its leader, Professor Bernard Quatermass, are tense. The world's first manned spacecraft, British, of course, has gone missing for 57 hours. The scientists can only wait, searching the skies for any kind of a sign of what happened to the missing craft. When contact is re-established, the craft has been on a wildly elliptical orbit over 38,000 miles into space, much farther than the near-Earth orbit that was planned. There is no response from the crew, but they are able to return the craft with reasonable success by remote control. It comes down in a house in Wimbledon. The craft is sealed, and when it is finally opened, only one of the three astronauts is still aboard, Victor Caroon. He is unresponsive and collapses when they try to question him. End of part one. Part two. Persons reported missing. Karun is taken to hospital while Quatermass's team explore the rocket. Inside, two empty spacesuits are found. With a rocket smashed into a home and two men missing, Chief Inspector Lomax of the Yard is on the case. He and his men collect evidence in the form of a spacesuit and, unbeknownst to Quatermass, Karun's fingerprints. Judith, an important member of Quatermass's team, is also Karun's wife. She confesses that she and Karun were unhappy and she was going to get a divorce, but now that Victor has returned, damaged, she won't leave him. She can't leave him, despite the fact that she is in love with Gordon Briscoe, the flight surgeon on the team. Victor is cold all the time and wrong. While obviously he is Victor Karun, his features are slightly wrong in ways they can't account for. Quatermass is incensed when he learns the police fingerprinted Karun as if he were a suspect. He withdraws Karun from the hospital and he goes to see Lomax. To dispel any future misunderstanding, Quatermass gives Lomax all their personnel files. Lomax, in turn, gives Quatermass something to think about. The spacesuit they took to examine still contained all the attached undergarments inside, as if the occupant had disappeared without taking them off. The wife of one of the missing astronauts, Mrs. Green, and Dr. Briscoe, return from the launch facility in Australia. Briscoe examines Karun and suspects there may even be changes to his bone structure. Mrs. Green tries questioning Karun and is surprised that he calls her by the nickname her husband used for her. But he says nothing meaningful. Lomax and his team discover something strange about Karun's fingerprints. They don't correctly match what Quatermass had on record, but they do appear to be an amalgam of the fingerprints of all three astronauts. At no point 
do they ever communicate this information to Quatermass. Quatermass shows Karun the launch footage to see if it jogs his memory. It does slightly, and he starts speaking German, a language Karun doesn't know, but that the third astronaut, Dr. Ludwig Reichenheim, spoke natively. They are all called to the rocket, where Patterson, one of Quatermass's team, has discovered lots of colloidal goo packed throughout the walls of the rocket. End of episode two. Also, end of Quatermass experiment, as we know it, as a video presentation from the BBC. As we've talked on uh, previous episodes, uh, the earlier Quatermass, and earlier British television, was re- in those days, like Quatermass in the Pit, it's what they called recorded as live. This was not recorded. It was just live. And... They were taking recordings. They did recordings of the first two episodes, and they just didn't bother to record episodes three through six. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the actual production that you can watch and see, uh, and then and then we'll uh, carry on with how you might be able to find out the rest of the story, and then we'll talk about the rest of the story, So or the story as a whole. So for starters, Simon, what did you think about what you got to see? I... Certainly enjoyed it. Um, it's it's classic Quatermass, really. I mean, it's got it's it's got all the kind of tension and excitement, uh, the engaging characters. Some of it is it, it it is still quite surprising. I mean, we've done this sort of backwards, um, through well, yeah, sort of backwards. <laughs> the bit bit a bit of time hopping through Quatermass and the Pit, Quatermass to Quatermass conclusion and then back to this and um or maybe it's because we watched the Quatermass conclusion recently i just kind of get a bit surprised and 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 i'm sure i've seen this before as well but i just get a, a bit taken aback by some of the conventions that w- would have been commonplace in in the in the 50s but didn't really stick around after that and one of those is is the way in which there is the 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 narrative opening to this mm. that kind of sets the scene before you get launched into the midst of the action at the beginning of this one and you wouldn't do that now you would just go straight into the action and then through the 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 dialogue you'd set the the context um i don't know which is good or bad but it's interesting it's very very different well, you know, one of the things I noticed about this is that, and again, as you say, we have jumped around, and let's ignore Quatermass or and or the Quatermass conclusion, uh, because that is an ITV production that's done on a film that that is not at all done like the 1950s Quatermass. Yeah, and the gap is much bigger in, in, in time. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge gap in time. So I noticed that this is an... This is a duh moment. It's more primitive than Quatermass in the Pit or even Quatermass 2. Quatermass 2 had far more film inserts. Uh, Quatermass 3 had, at times, it was hard to tell it was a live production. And, or Quatermass in the Pit. And and even by the time they had reached Quatermass 2, they had figured out not how to do that ridiculously slow, long, black scene fade between the two <laughs> I, I actually when i watched this i felt like i felt like maybe they were showing the tv audience something else you know like a, a film insert and that the camera that was being used to record 
this wasn't getting to see that, uh, you know, that it was, it's an artifact of what, what they had recorded as opposed to what actually went out in the air. Cause they seemed really long, you know, almost, almost let's draw the curtain and, uh, not quite give the cast a smoke break time, but you know, quite long compared to what they had in the other ones. They were much smoother. But my understanding is the the, the recording, the, the the what they're filming is the actual feed that went out. They are yes, I think yes, it is. It's just it, it's like so. You look at it, you know. Well, obviously the television was different back then, as I say. Yeah, well, duh. Yeah, but <laughs> it's like I but, I want to uh, no, I, I agree. The, I agree with you. The the the, the kind of sense of location from Quatermass 2 and just the the kind of the the liveliness of the I don't know everything the editing the staging everything in Quatermass experiment it's so um it's so far removed from what in this feels very much like you're on a on a stage set essentially mm-hmm. that they they they're creating this this rocket control room by having four or five people um sitting on benches behind each other and yeah the the dialogue and everything is is and the performances are compelling enough to quite quickly draw you into that but the first thing you notice is yeah this is this is five guys on two benches and <laughs> it it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a rocket control center no it doesn't and i and i I will draw attention to the incredible trajectory tracking device that Judith is using, which is a globe with some elliptical plastic strips around it that she that she moves little markers up and down to do the calculations on. It it was it was just drawing my eye to it. It's like, oh, that's just brilliant. It makes no sense, but it's does it's it such not a nice make sense? I... Not, not really. No, I mean, if they're trying to calculate, an, if if those orbits are meant to represent elliptical orbits, then surely they don't have one that corresponds to the orbit that actually happened, which is so far out it went beyond the moon. No, but they're they're what she's doing is trying is tracking the orbit there. They were expecting it. I mean, just in t- in terms of as a piece of equipment, because. The, again, the kind of thing that you you expect is for them all to be getting get, getting their calculations from Slide computers rolls. or computing machines. Or, <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's 1953. Yeah. So it just, I, you know, I I I was fine with it. I thought it was a it was a good visual metaphor. I don't know how practical or whether it's any basis in reality, but I I did kind of think it was it. It was just amusing what they were using to represent something that completely alien to the way we would look at it, which would be computers or even even guys at slide rules. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but I, I mean, I would I would be interested in what you know, if if, if there had been a rocket launch in 1953, what would that control room have looked like? Because it some some of those things felt to me like um, quite effective ways of drawing your attention from the fact that it was just five people on two benches and 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 the the link up the audio link up to the control room in Australia to give it more of that kind of there being this global coordinated bigger virtual team than what you're actually seeing mm-hmm. in the room i kind of think those things did help a bit because 
One aspect of what they must have been dealing with here is the fact that you would actually expect there to be a hell of a lot of people working on this and yet they were on a TV budget that they couldn't show a bunch of people or even a a big room with a load of extras. This feels to me like, you know, those plucky British... The, yes. the, the Dunkirk spirit. Yes. We can get this done. You know, there's there's four of us and an old man who's putting the blinds down during the Blitz. But, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it has that stereotypical feel that that Americans get about the British, where we'd send a big team. They send, yeah, we get a couple people. It's like, so it, it does kind of it does kind of have that feel. Um, it, yeah. Like whether or not this contributes to that, or whether or not this is an accurate reflection, or just it didn't feel out of place for me that the British rocket experimental rocket group would be tiny. Not maybe not five guys, but pretty darn small, pretty darn small. Um, And and you know at some point we can discuss uh, the British space program, but uh, yeah. Um, so right now we're kind of concentrating on, on the production itself. This is produced and directed by, uh, Richard Cartier. Rudolph. Uh, Rudolph, sorry. You're right. Rudolph. Got it written down here wrong. Cartier, who also did two and, and the pit. Um, the guy is really talented. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. This, even that this, even this in its most rudimentary form, and with us only having two episodes to watch, is clearly the guy knew what he was doing, and he he stages it well. He's got he's got scenes like when they're in the old lady's house where the rocket came down, which is a brilliant way of not having to go on location. Um, <laughs> come on, just put it in a put it in a studio in a somebody's house. Um, it, 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 well, except um, it's not. It's 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 the. He, it's the bomb site, effectively, because it's destroyed right, it's, most of her house. It's, but it is, it is still it's, it's, it's a nice it's set. In, it's indoors, though. In other words, what you're looking it's at... It's supposed to be outdoors. Really? It looks like you are in her living room where the rocket has come down. But, uh, okay. I, See, so I maybe think, it didn't work that, as well as I thought. There is no uh, roof, you know? You're, you're, oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's no roof anymore. I agree. You're in amongst the rubble. I agree. But in other words, there's enough walls around it that oh, yeah. you're not trying to portray a, a field or or chimneys and smokestacks in the distance of London well, no, or whatnot. You just yeah, yeah. So it's uh, uh, it, it, it's it, it works well. But what I was getting at is, you know, he's got a, a relatively small set there, and he's got the press and the police and Quatermass's team and the rockets and the bystanders, and they all kind of move in and out of that set. They're all still there, but they all get they all get blocked away in such a way that you can concentrate on the characters that you need to concentrate on and then they kind of move off. It's like it's in a stage production it would be like if two people walked on, gave their bit and walked off, but they're not quite doing that here. They're sort of walking into the fore or perhaps the camera's panning a bit to bring them into the fore, and then another group is kind of coming to the fore, and those are going out. It, it's really well done, considering how many people he's got on the screen, or right there in that set. It's slick, because, yeah. I mean, bearing in mind that this is this is actual life, you know, this is, there's no, right. yeah. 
Well, it would be a it would be a pain if we had to stop the cameras. Well, you can't stop the cameras. This is going out as we're watching it, and there there would be a similar thing if you were to perform something on stage. Except you probably wouldn't actually do something quite this complicated with this many people, or try and achieve the level of realism that he manages with the background you know the the activity right. that goes on behind as you say it's the way it's choreographed in front of the camera because you've well the camera allows you to focus the attention it does of the allow viewer. you to focus but it also it also you can't do on a stage on yeah on a stage you have to simplify it because you know you, you you've got to bring you've got to bring your foreground characters into a position where the whole stage can see I mean, you just can't do this the the you know the the multiple bits of action going on at the same time, like we, we are RCA seeing is managing the to do here, and he doesn't have to television. do it. Yeah, yeah, he, he's 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 it's got it's a flourish that he's doing. He, he is yeah. he is creating bigger. Uh, I mean, when I say this is the birth of television, obviously there has been some television going back to the thirties, um, and obviously the productions of film crews and how movies are made has gone back decades prior to this point. So it's not like putting somebody in front of camera is a new thing, but this is kind of the, you know, the, 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 we are going from stage to televised stage, which ultimately became more film-like as it is now, which is, you know, recorded and edited, but there he's clearly pushing the boundaries of, the metaphor of we're filming a stage production to something new and something different that just evolves on and then ultimately goes away when when entirely edited programs come along it, it's it, it's it's it is an impressive piece of work and and you and you're right i mean it is incredibly early because we're talking about if i i mean in terms of broadcast television which as you say is different is a different medium because of the because it's live it's more akin to radio um and and it's been around at this point for uh, it be it would be the, what would it be the equivalent of if here we are sitting in 2021 it's it's been around for about as long as doctor who's been back on the screen it's like television was into it was invented when rose aired it's that kind mm-hmm. of time scale yeah yeah and it's shocking to think that this is almost 70 years ago yeah yeah um but anyway i i I, and you know the the opening scenes in the in the control room it's the writing it's the directing not a whole heck of a lot exactly is happening there but at the same time they've done a beautiful job of making it interesting and tense and and let's not you know dismiss the acting as well but you know that that is a scene that, in a way, kind of shouldn't work, but it it does. And uh, I, you know, I found myself enjoying this from the very beginning. I, it, it dragged a little bit when Mom and Pop were standing in the the rubble there and going on about the old lady and her <laughs> cat, and that that part was, I don't know, felt like they were letting the the actors have a breather off the off the scene, or that they were killing killing a bit of time which i know that that's not the case these all ran long but but they are get they are letting they get they're getting them they've got 
they're giving the actors chance to do the change. Yeah, because if, if, any 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 movement from one set to another, any costume changes, anything like that, they have to do it in real time. Obviously, right, right. And I don't know that there was anything that needed a lot of time, but it just it just that that scene just kind of dragged off. Now I get that that probably played very differently with 1953 audiences who have just lived through the Blitz less than a decade before or so, or about a decade ago. Um, you know, the, the, there's clearly imagery here that is meant to remind you of the Blitz. Uh, and, and also, the again, that stereotypical British keep calm and carry on kind of attitude that was projected for what was going on during during the Blitz. So I, I'm guessing this probably resonated differently with audiences than, than it did. You know, it probably was more interesting to the audiences, though, because it... It, they had a connection to it and it, it probably drew them in more than it did me, which was kind of like, yeah, this seems kind of unlikely that that would have crashed on a house and those people would be standing around going, Oh, they dropped one in a, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, no, I, no, <laughs> it's like, nope, be gone, long gone, get the hell out of there. One of the things that we have noted about the Quatermass serials that we've looked at is that there are no two quater masses alike and <laughs> here here we're looking at uh reginald tate the original quater mass and i guess this is the i think i read this was neil's favorite quater mass i i, I i've said to that i've certainly seen him speak highly of him yes yes and i think i've heard him speak well i personally haven't heard him speak you know uh of comparing the others to reginald tate which tends to make me think if he thinks of reginald tate as the that's the holotype which he would be but as the archetype for uh for quatermass and so uh, i i definitely know that you know when they came along in 1955 and made a movie out of this he hated the the actor who played greater mass there's no other word for it um and and we might even have a chance to briefly talk about that but what what did you think of of tate's performance reginald tate died quite soon after this didn't he don't know exactly when but i think he was definitely not available through death for greater mass in the pit i'm not sure about greater mass 2 well the pit was 57 so he must have died within four years uh yeah 50 he, 55 he died so he he may have been alive for the release of the film but only just yeah yeah and they were they weren't going to hire him for the film N no way no how the, the the distributors hammer film wanted to, uh, a name no they they were required the the distributors required hammer to have an american period an american discussion I see. An American. That was just part of the deal to get it sold to the United States. So they, they had to have leads who were, they had to have an American lead in it. And so they they got Brian Dunleavy, who was drunk uh, on the outs on his career, didn't care. Uh, I've heard all sorts of things about how much he really just didn't care what he was doing. And his performance matched that. Um, I haven't watched it. I think thought about watching it before we did this podcast but i 
I ultimately rejected the idea of watching any of the newer Quatermass stuff until after, and until after done the proper Quatermass. Although I have seen all of them. You've seen it in the past. You just haven't rewatched oh, it recently. Oh, 40, 40 years ago. <laughs> oh, okay. Quite a long time in the past. A really I, long I mean, time I, ago, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've never, I've never seen it. I've seen the I, 2005. I, I, I have certainly seen the 2005 version. And in I, 2005, this, yeah. This was very familiar. So I've definitely seen some, maybe episode two of this in the past. I, I liked Reginald Tate in this. I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, if if I had been Neil in 1953, I would probably have been very pleased with the performance. Looking back on it now and ranking my quarter masses, <laughs> I, I mean, for me, it's still Andre Morel. I think he is absolutely That's And the pit, right? Yeah, that, yeah in, in And the pit. I, I probably think I prefer John Mills to, to Reginald Tate. Um, I think... It, it's difficult because we've only got two episodes of and, Tate and that's to the go problem. on. That's the problem. I don't think Quatermass is very interesting in these first two episodes. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and you know, the two, the two episodes, uh, that's, that's, I guess, equivalent to one episode of Quatermass or one quarter of Quatermass. Um, and, and Mills gets some much more interesting stuff to do in that, you know, just that opening mm-hmm. episode. Tate is you know he he's he's competent that's that's all i can he's, say he, yeah he's he's competent but also he can he conveys the 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 uh excitement he's 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 reasonably commanding uh he's he's inquisitive he's there's a bit of you know it it, it it's that balance between being it's the i don't want to say bluster but it's the it's the the worry because he's in a, a tense situation and being someone who has the the confidence to command the situation he's in because kind of one of the things about Quatermass is this kind of I don't want to describe him as a visionary but he he is able to to see almost intuitively actually almost supernaturally what is going on before mm. anyone else is able to get beyond all of the kind of quite rational assumptions that they are making about the situation. So um, for me, I did think Andre Morel absolutely nailed that. And it would have been interesting if Morel had played this because Tate was the second choice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, okay. Do you have anything else about the actual production version of it? Uh... Any no, other actors I, I, or anything? Okay. No, I th- I think I think that we've well no that I would say I will say one thing actually while we're on actors um, because there is a character in this story who does appear in the first two episodes who we are familiar with because <laughs> we have watched Quatermass and the Pit beyond Quatermass himself there there aren't that many returning characters are there? No, just. Full of love, right? J- James Full of Love, yeah, exactly. What so a, we know what a fantastically ridiculous name. But okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the Marshal we... from the Mutants, indeed, and uh, and from 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 uh, Room Without a View uh, and other Avengers episodes. So uh, a familiar face in Paul Whitson Jones, as as seems to be the tradition in Quatermass. 
not the actor who played it in Quatermass and the Pit. Right. But um, I, re- I, I, I really, really liked him in this. I, I liked the kind of the opening scene. The, I, I mean, it's both it's both the char- the character who I enjoyed in Quatermass and the Pit. I like the way Neil is writing him again as being being slightly slightly quicker and and more um a- able to grasp what's going on than necessarily yeah. those people around him and so that that scene with his editor where he surprises the editor by taking the story I really really enjoyed that and I did think Paul Whitson Jones was absolutely superb in this and one of my one of my regrets about the the missing episodes is the fact that we don't get to see more of him in this role. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he he was, uh, and the character is more interesting as he goes on. Okay, so I'll just say if I didn't get this part out, the they were originally thinking of selling this overseas, and that's why they started recording the episodes in the very primitive way that they did, and two episodes in despite the fact that the show was getting really really excellent ratings they just said eh let's not bother and so it is not like doctor who where the episodes have been wiped they were never recorded and you know obviously in 1953 nobody was at home with a vcr so <laughs> you know it, it just isn't uh and probably not even anybody with a t- tape recorder attached for the sound it, nothing of that sort of thing that's what that's what has given us so much of of Doctor Who that you know within within ten years there would be a lot of that going on, but not in nineteen fifty three yeah but we're not going to leave you cliff uh hanging on this because Greater mass experiment is uh, a a key piece of science fiction uh story as well. There are a couple ways that you can know the goodness, not including watching the the film, which I understand is actually a reasonable adaptation, uh, or the 2005, which I feel like wasn't such a good one, but I'll, I'll maybe talk about that. Well, okay, let's start with the DVDs. On the DVDs are the scripts. Photocopies of the scripts. That was how we were originally going to watch watch the last four episodes. They are terrible. They're so terrible, it actually says they're terrible in the Wikipedia entry. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. It says, oh, the scripts were included on the DVD, but in many cases, they can't be read, which is absolutely true. You just... It is... Yeah. They they can't... There there are patches of them where you can't make out the writing. So... Yeah. While from the point of view of being able to examine a camera script and be able to say, well, you know, this is what's going on in this page. There may be interesting tidbits there in terms of getting a through line of the narrative. The fundamental problem is that they have been scanned in black From photocopies. White. From photocopies, well, I'm getting, they, yeah. Scanning them from photocopies, you could, get, you could get a much, much better digital version of it if you, you scanned them in grayscale. They have been scanned in black and white, and by doing it in black and white, there's a whole load of information that's just been lost. If it if it was perfectly clean, it wouldn't matter that it that it was scanned in black and white, but because because it is, it it I mean okay for one thing it's it's quite interesting. If you get the DVD, it's worth having a look at. It's worth having a look at these because they're 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 interesting documents and the bits that you can see are quite interesting. 
but they have been typed on what looks to me like a manual typewriter. So the edges of the lettering, for example, would have, the, you'd, the, the letters themselves would be black, fine, but around the edges of the letters, it would have been not quite so black. And obviously, in the scan, that's either had to go to white or black. If it had been grayscale, you'd be able to read it. Where there is dirt on the page, if there's enough dirt, it's gone to black. So you just get a, some a of the pages maybe colors. Some of the pages may be colors because that's how they do script revisions, or at least in the United States, it is. Oh, Perfectly change possible. page seven. And here's here's the yellow page, or here's the blue page. Because some of them are well, just so black, it's ridiculous. A scan in color would have been even better, but I I I I I, I cannot understand why why someone went to the trouble of doing this, but didn't use grayscale. It's well, that would imply that the that would imply that the document still exists somewhere in paper form and could perhaps be scanned again. And I kind of think the source material was already shot, but but it doesn't matter. You can't really read it uh, if you want to try to enjoy the story. But luckily, in about I think it was fifty nine, Nigel Neal put Quater Mass Experiment in book form. It's still a script, but it's in book form, and then that was re released in nineteen. 79 um when quatermass came out uh which is when i got my copy which has been i've had for well since probably about 82 uh and uh, and simon had to buy one also 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 the 79 copy yeah i think i mean i think i'm right in saying because i i've seen it i've i've seen it before i'm pretty sure i found it on my dad's bookshelves and if i if i'm right the the three of them were all released in book form the the 50s Quatermass serials. I have not been able to find Quatermass and the Pit, but Quatermass 2 I have, and they also released a book form of Quatermass, which is actual a novel by Nigel Neal. I've never seen Quatermass and the Pit in that form. I, I, may, I may be wrong about that. I, I, I was pretty sure that Quatermass Experiment wasn't the only one in book form, and it and it's it's interesting Definitely too. as a... Yeah, the the it, uh, as a way of experiencing the story again, because in in the in the nineteen fifties, obviously you wouldn't have had the opportunity to buy something on VHS, or you know that we we were such a long way off that that repeats would not have been a thing, and yeah. Quatermass experiment was such a big deal, such a big deal, that it was worth producing it in in bound script form like this for people to have a way of experiencing it. Yeah. So let's uh, let's carry on with uh, the synopses for episodes three through six. This may be your only way to experience it if you can't get a hold of the copy of the book. Part three. Special knowledge. Both Briscoe and Lomax take samples of the goo back to their labs for analysis. It appears to be harmless, but Patterson, who has been examining the rocket, isn't happy that he's been exposed. His old grievance that he should have been one of the three astronauts also comes to the fore, and he voices his displeasure to Quatermass. Karun continues to exhibit strange physiological changes. The texture of his skin is changing, and when they try to give him some tea, he becomes violent, smashing the tea to the floor and saying, in German, not to feed it. 
Judith gets an idea and begins questioning Karun in German, which he is able to understand and respond to, albeit without making any sense. She begins to realize, as Quatermass has, that they're all in there, all three in one person. Lomax is being bothered by unnamed security concerns, and he tries to warn Quatermass, as well as to stop him from taking Karun back to the rocket. He fails at both things. At the rocket site, a bitter and drunk Patterson says some indiscreet things to the gathered international press. Quatermass has heard the voice recorder data and wants to return Karun to the ship and play back the recording to see what happens. In flashback, we witness what happened in space. A strange noise and nothing else plagued the ship. But then the sound got into the ship. And then their heads. First Green, then Ludwig, and finally Karun. Karun clearly has a reaction to the memories and collapses after the flashback. He's taken to the remains of the house that the rocket crashed into to rest, awaiting an ambulance. Here, the press, long delayed on getting a story, are pressing with questions. Karun becomes fascinated with a cactus, which he grabs in his bare hand. When a photojournalist locks him in the kitchen and tries to press for a picture, Karun kills him. Outside the kitchen, shots are heard, and when Quatermass and Lomax burst in, Karun is missing. The door has been shot open from outside, and a black car speeds away. Part 4. Believed to be suffering. Karun has been kidnapped by professional agents working for a foreign power. The reporter was one of them, and they even have a decoy car that leads the coppers a merry chase. Quatermass tries to get ahead of the problem by making a press statement, letting everyone know that Karun has been abducted, in the hopes that public awareness will help find him. What Quatermass does not say is that he is worried that Karun is dangerous. The dead reporter seems to have had the life sucked out of him instantly. Quatermass finally explains to Lomax that he thinks Karun is going through some sort of biochemical change, and they need to get him under observation immediately. The kidnappers run afoul of whatever Karun is becoming, and die, and crash, and die, in that order. Karun escapes on foot and hides in a bombed-out building. The post-mortem is finished, and it's a completely new form of death, some form of biological digestion. Quatermass and Judith speculate that some form of life, possibly made only of energy, floating in space, encountered the craft and found them edible, and also suitable to adapt for life on Earth. Lomax is having difficulty believing all of this. Meanwhile, Patterson is trying to give reporter James Fullalove a hard-hitting, full-on hatchet piece on his perceived grievances with the way Quatermass has run this project, and most importantly, how he botched the astronaut selection process. Fullalove sees right through this and has no time for his nonsense. Fullalove has a nose for news, and he's figured out Karun is somehow dangerous. And that's the story he's latched onto. A boy finds Karun and, guessing that he's hiding, takes him to see a movie. Karun leaves mid-movie, but the boy is caught and tells the authorities that it was the missing astronaut. The search is back on. Karun finds his way to a chemist, and when the chemist looks at his arm, it's a monstrosity. He faints. Part 5. An Unidentified Species In the chemist's shop, Karun assembles a concoction of chemicals and drinks it. Quatermass is questioning the boy who took Karun to the movies. He's not much help, but they conclude it was probably Karun. In the lab, Briscoe is trying to determine if the chemical digestion process might have led to the substance found in the spaceship. Patterson comes in. He's quitting. He's had enough of this fantasy nonsense that Quatermass has fallen into. 
he seems genuinely disturbed entertaining the idea that something in space caused the problems. Later, when the police have learned of the chemist shop incident, they learn that Karun may have created a substance in an effort to kill himself. Briscoe is not so sure. He thinks it might be a catalyst to complete a biochemical change. Karun wouldn't have that technical knowledge, but Green would have. Karun is nowhere to be found at the chemist, and an extensive search for his body is underway. Fullalove is there, and he, unlike the other reporters, has figured out a lot of the story. Quatermass takes him into his confidence over Lomax's objections on the condition that he not publish at this time. Karun is not dead, and we see him further transformed at night on Duck Island, St. James Park. The next morning, Patterson's article is published in another paper, blaming Quatermass for the failure because he picked the wrong astronauts. This bothers Team Quatermass, but that's quickly forgotten when news of many dead ducks on Duck Island come through. Yes, they've been digested by the thing that was once Karun. Living samples are found, and Briscoe takes one for analysis. Lomax has a lot of crowd control to deal with during the day because of various events in the area, and he has one report from a drunk about something big and mossy that was climbing walls in the area. Briscoe and Quatermass are able to make their specimen grow, and it starts to form sporangia. The creature might be preparing to reproduce via spores. A tip about some crumbling stonework leads Lomax to Westminster Abbey, where the BBC is doing a live architectural broadcast. He tries to stop the broadcast, but nobody stops the BBC until their cameras discover a huge, growing, moving thing inside the Abbey above Poet's Corner. Part 6. State of Emergency Lomax evacuates the BBC crew in the Abbey, but not before live video of the thing is broadcast to the British public. As Lomax's people block off the Abbey, the curious public begin to gather in the streets. In the lab, Briscoe and Quatermass have discovered the worst possible news. They have brought their specimen to the point where it releases spores. All organic matter, molds, algae, plants, and animals succumb and are absorbed to it within minutes. If the thing in the Abbey releases spores, indigenous life on Earth will end. They successfully destroy the specimen by burning it and hope to recreate that success with the thing in the Abbey. The crowd is, at first, nothing more than curious, but eventually people listening to officials overhear the name Quatermass, whose name is much in the news lately, and suddenly they begin to realize the thing is a space monster, and panic begins. Lomax has managed to get the powers that be to send in the military at Quatermass's recommendation, with lots and lots of flamethrowers. They believe they have less than 30 minutes, and Quatermass's supposition is that they will need to burn the entire thing, which is growing enormous, all at once to prevent parts of it from sporing as soon as it is attacked, or it may go on the offensive, preventing success. Quatermass feels the only honest thing to do is to inform the worldwide public via live TV of what has happened and tell them that, should this fail, they will all die in a matter of days. His hubris led to this, and he asks for their forgiveness. Patterson arrives. He's been denying the possibility all along, but now he's had to come see it for himself. He's wronged and slandered Quatermass. When Quatermass and the military realize they didn't have any troops in the crypt underneath the abbey, Quatermass fears that will be an out, allowing the thing to survive. Patterson, who was trained to use flamethrowers in Burma, volunteers and heads to the crypt. Over the portable radio, Patterson reports that he can hear the thing in the crypt, just before it kills him. Quatermass realizes it's already dug its way underground, and the attack cannot succeed. The end of the world is assured. 
Fullalove is there and laments the story he cannot publish and waxes about the three astronauts who were pressed into service against their own world. This strikes a note with Quatermass, who slips into the abbey and addresses the thing directly. Or more specifically, he addresses the three men still inside of it. Now is the time to fight back. Judith, outside, realizes what Quatermass is trying. The recording of the flight and the sound it made spurred Karun's memories back in the lab. Perhaps they can do the same now. They play back the tape to augment Quatermass's entreaties. It works. The thing starts howling out the same sound, and then it dies. The world has been saved. A very weary Quatermass emerges and, I'm certain, is very relieved that he'll never have to save the world from an alien invasion again. The end. All right. Now we can talk about the story. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and this this is <clears throat> presumably the point where you usually say something rude and unjustified about Mary Shelley. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Perhaps I wasn't going to save it for the first moment, but uh, but yes, um, we definitely, towards the end of this, get the, I'm a scientist and my quest for it led to this disaster and I'm so sorry. Whoops. Um, but, and this is the part that I was alluding to earlier, this is what we needed to see Reginald Tate doing. We needed yes. to see Reginald Tate going through this episode, increasingly becoming burdened by the knowledge that his actions, justified or not, whether he's taking the blame for this exclusively, um, have led him to the conclusion that he has brought the world to, to the brink of destruction and and the weight that that carries on him. And unfortunately, you know, really they haven't, they haven't reached that point by the end of episode two and we don't get to see it. But, but it's there in the writing, but I can see how it would be... A lot of the time the dialogue doesn't convey that because Quatermass is doing the job. I mean, there are moments of reflection where you can tell that that's on his mind, but, you know, yes, then you I mean, go a few pages where, you know, the only way that would be conveyed would be in the act or the manner of the actor at the time and that we're not getting well, certainly that line in episode five about about meddling curiosity and then when mm -hmm. he when he gets to the the tv broadcast you know it's all about guilt and i have brought upon the earth what appears to be the most frightful thing ever known so there's a huge amount of frankenstein in quatermass at least in mm -hmm. this story i think yeah yeah i mean the threat is obviously much ramped up from Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, being a global global threat rather than a few people being bumped off by a rampaging animal. Creature that could probably be shot, yeah, and killed if somebody got it in the right, in the sights of their rifle or something. But yeah, it, it, it's, um, you know, the, so here's the question. In Frankenstein, this is the cautionary tale. But in Quatermass... It's less the cautionary tale and more the the analysis of Quatermass taking that upon himself. In other words, he is a post-Frankenstein world. He is automatically predisposed to, oh yeah, science, I did it again, <laughs> kind of thing. So it, it, it's, more about, it's more about conveying to the audience what Quatermass is lamenting than it, than it is saying science shouldn't go out and do things like this i don't i don't think i get the impression that it's uh uh i'm not sure i agree i mean i think the 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 difference as you say is 
is a, a lot of it is to do with the monster itself in you know the kind of well the the scale of it that certainly adds to the drama and the fact that it involves space rockets which is kind of automatically more exciting but Quatermass is is the Frankenstein character who brings this about what he describes as his as his meddling curiosity that gives rise to the question of Pat, all the way through this Patterson is is saying Quatermass should not have should not have been the one to do this because he did it wrong we should have done this differently yeah but Patterson's green specific way gr- grouse his gripe is I mean, it's not just subtext there. It's, I should have been one of the astronauts. You picked the wrong astronauts. He's he's not... Yes. yes. Everything else is... So, it, it's all about his sour grapes that he's not being an astronaut. And now he's justifying that it's all gone wrong because you picked the wrong... If you'd gotten the right guy, I'd have handled this and we'd have been hunky-dory. There'd have been no problem. And then he goes through that sort of weird that weird bit about how you know Quatermass is just basically off on a fantasy now this he's you know don't try to figure out some sort of space alien or some nonsense that's just science fiction bs this is about you screwing up buddy and not putting me on that rocket and in a in a way it's almost like patterson is the character who is putting science as a religion you know, these this, this is the facts, and there are no space aliens, and this is nonsense, and I, I'm not going to believe what I see. I'm not going to believe the evidence because it contradicts my preconceived notion of what happens in space. Well, he, I think what he's saying is the, is the evidence is insufficient because I think what we get is a character in Quatermass who, as I kind of alluded to, I see as being super intuitive. It's like he makes deductive leaps that go beyond the information that is available to him but which happen to be right in the course of the story so what we get in Patterson is someone who is both presenting the very rational position of this is not this this this, this is not a this is not an explanation of what has got as of, of what has occurred here because it's just ludicrous but we also get that uh, you know, coming back to the point of the the analysis of the the problem here being the way in which this was done, and the Patterson character arc is about him actually being shown to be in the wrong. So it's not the the what what Neil is certainly arguing is not actually that what happened here was that the Quatermass experiment was mishandled that if it had been the Patterson experiment it would have gone right I think that that is comprehensively rejected in so far as Patterson gets to be the one who goes through the the self-sacrifice in order to be redeemed in you mm-hmm. know taking taking the flamethrower down into the crypt yeah. so uh, that 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 brings us back to actually the the argument that Quatermass puts, which is meddling curiosity when it comes down to it, that he which is he's, he, he's wrong. <laughs> he's exploring is not meddling curiosity. I'm sorry, I I will there, not there, accept there is, that position. There is there is no 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 kind of logical escape 
within the story from the fact that Quatermass's actions have indeed brought this upon the world, so brought the world to near distraction. And if Quatermass had not done them, then they Someone would not be in have. that predicament. Well, but the but the but the point is that Neil is then using Quatermass as a as a symbol for mankind's curiosity. He represents not just the one man who did it, but all of the people who might have done it out of curiosity. It is it is not human to deny curiosity. So we can we can make the case and I don't disagree that it is the actions of the Quatermass experiment or the fact that they conducted the experiment that led to them encountering something that we had absolutely no way of detecting or understanding and that that came back to us in in the same way that you go to Africa and you bring back malaria or take smallpox with you when you go. Those things do happen. Can Quatermass and Quatermass can as a human being feel responsibility for that but is he to blame for that or is that accidents happen and sometimes you cannot avoid accidents happening and people will always take blame for accidents well some people will obviously avoid it but in other words it it is also in our in our nature that if you were driving down in a car and a child leapt in front of your car and you killed that child you would feel guilty about it even if it was 100 percent that child's fault or even the parent of the child flinging the child out in front of your car, you would take blame for it. That's part of human nature. This is one of the things that Neil does so well, is that he writes people that behave, perhaps not necessarily logically, but he writes people in a way who behave as people do. But I, 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 I don't see this as... I don't see this as a cautionary tale uh, as a metaphor. And, and, you know, and, and Neil himself has never said he's, he's gone out of his way to say this is not science fiction. I don't like science fiction. Science fiction is not, you know, that's, that's all I care about is writing a drama with people in it. And, and he is trying to talk about the people in this more than, I mean, the threat makes it exciting, but it, it not in the way that Frankenstein is, is meant to be a, a anti anti-science, anti-progress, anti-experimental polemic. Uh, I, Which I don't think, I don't think Frankenstein is meant to be those things. And I don't think that it, I don't think that where, whether or not it is science fiction and it is science fiction, I mean, I that, that probably is a hill I'm prepared to die on, but that, that, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't... I, I think that, he's wrong. It, it's it, science fiction, yeah. I, I I agree, but if I if I conceded that point, I don't think that would necessarily mean that he can't tell a story that is about the ethics of doing science because that doesn't require the fictional element. I mean, it obviously it's a fictional story, but it doesn't require the the science itself to be fictional at the point the story is being told. So, I I I think there is a, there is a sense in. I mean, the, I don't think there's any denying how closely Quatermass is trajectory in this story maps um Victor Frankenstein's in 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 Mary Shelley's the only difference that I can 
see in it is the way in which Quatermass gets to be a more effective part of the the resolution. Yeah, I, I want to I want to draw one thing out. Quatermass says Frankenstein does not manifest in two, three, and four. Well, uh, but but that's partly because he survives, right? I mean, we wouldn't have had a sequel if if right. But in other words, in, in two. He didn't bring the aliens to Earth. He discovered them. In three, yes, he didn't yes. bring the aliens to Earth. He discovered them. In four, yes. he didn't bring the aliens to Earth. He discovered yeah, yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's no, no there's I no agree. The guilt and, and of this, the man the, there. Yeah. This, this, hasn't, this hasn't come up before. I just... And, and to be honest, I... In, in previous watchings of the Quatermass experiment, I did not... I did not spot the similarities, but they are strong um once you once you kind of see them it's hard to it's hard to kind of ignore the parallels that exist it, but like like i say like you've pointed out the fact that quatermass survives and the the kind of the the more um effective role he plays in the resolution of the story that's a difference between what 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 happens to frankenstein and what happens to him Mm. Um, and 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 I mentioned this before. I haven't seen the 2005 version since 2005, which is 90 minutes long, approximately, as opposed yep. to this, which is well, three hours, approximately. Yep. So they they they've cut half of it. They've cut an and, awful and... lot of it, and I a lot of the things like the I think I think like the foreign agents that also plot. I think all I was on. just going to say that. I mean, you 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 mentioned the kind of chatting scene with with the the, the characters who are discussing the the it being a bomb site and mm-hmm. that being obvious padding. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. Although sitting through it, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't twiddling my thumbs at that. Whereas reading through, and, and you know, I must say, I looking back on the story i kind of i can't quite remember which bits i read and which bits i watched without thinking quite carefully about it because the words just they do leap off at you and and i i did find reading this quite gripping but one of the less gripping parts of it was the whole the kidnapping foreign spy part mm-hmm. of it which did strike me as being i mean it's it's padding not in the sense of it, it obviously could be quite an exciting plot twist or whatever but if you if you lost that and lost half an hour out of the story in consequence it wouldn't be a weaker story i'm really wondering how in the 2005 version or even in the 1955 version how they got karun out of their uh hands and how did how did he escape into the wild as it well i mean he could he could just escape couldn't i mean there are ways you could do it I'm just curious how it is. I am going to go watch the Quatermass Experiment, or the Creeping Unknown, as it's known in the United States, after this. I may even watch it tomorrow. But, um, you know, I want to see that I want to see that film through, and I want to watch the 2005 version again, uh, just now to compare. Um, but, what you know, one, one of the things about the foreign agent story that, and they talk it up elsewhere, the press earlier is the notion that these guys, the first men to go up, and they're supposed to just circle the Earth twice. And in that time, apparently foreign agents think it's so important that there's something they might see that we need to kidnap them to get that information. Because there's a a question of whether or not 
Karun or the Quatermass team were actually working as spies for the British government and, and looking at things as they flew over. Well, that's a, that's a fair point, is it? This, isn't there the whole thing about satellites? Uh, yes, yes. I, I, no, I'm not saying that it isn't, it isn't a thing. It's just I think it's kind of unrealistic well, it seems to quite think far-sighted. that if you're sticking your eyes out the porthole as you're going around the Earth... Oh yeah, look, there's uh, an army installation. You know, that's not that's not happening. Not 1953. Uh, you would need telephoto lens and cameras and and you know a little bit more coordinated tracking. They had telephoto lenses. I mean, they did, but I'm I'm thinking that it's a of all the things they could be worried about. That that guy saw something out the window is <laughs> pretty slim. Uh, to me, I, I think that's overblown and and does show a sort of unrealistic thoughts of the time, perhaps. It, and which would be a reason for them to remove it from the story. In yeah, the, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I am not interested in defending it as being part of the plot. I didn't necessarily find the the fact that there were foreign agents interested in the space mission difficult to believe. What I found slightly difficult to credit was the very kind of amateurish way that it it, it seemed to be contracted to a bunch of ba- you know basically petty thugs to it got the job done right conduct this kidnapping i Where, mean not yeah, notwithstanding that they captured a monster right i mean that there is the part that they didn't they didn't clown for but they had the photographer they got him in the crowd they got him located he sent a signal they kidnapped the guy cleanly and if the guy by hadn't luck, been a monster by- by, right. No, no, no. Because, be, be, by, I think, I think there's an element of the fact that they got away with him. It was by luck because the the photographer did not survive, so that clearly wasn't part of the plan. But that's because he's you a could monster. Say, <laughs> you could say that's because he's a monster, but the dialogue that the other guys in the car subsequently have about him clearly indicate that they think he's a complete idiot as well. So, I'm not sure that. I'm not again, sure that they, these are the creme de la creme but, of, but, yeah. of uh, foreign espionage. I, 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 yeah, but I, like I say, if it had not been for the fact that this is a monster that can touch you and suck the life out of you, they would have found, isolated, captured that guy and gotten him away along with their decoy. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't luck. jostled the car and he fell forward and touched the driver and killed him instantaneously which then wrecked the car and then ultimately killed the other agent. That that was, they got the job done. They just had not counted on the fact that this was not a human being that they were kidnapping. I mean, that it, I'm, I'm not saying that they were the best, but they certainly took it right out from under the police at a highly public place and, and got it, got the job done with casualties. But anyway, let's see. There was actually something in this episode or this story that reminded me of the 1960s uh, Invaders TV series, which I've been reviewing lately. And that was, why did we have all that with Judith and her divorce? And Because I don't really feel like it paid off in any way. Well, it's the love interest, isn't it? Well, but they don't really do anything with it. She, she she tells Quatermass, hey, I was going to leave him but for Dr. Briscoe, but, but now I can't. Well, if she had just never done that, 
you would have watched this and said, well, that's just a wife keeping an eye on her husband. And she's never really lovey-dovey with Briscoe until right at the end when they hug. So, I mean, she gives him the, you know, I can't leave him now. Yeah, I understand. Okay. It, maybe it's no sex, please, we're British, kind of. And I'm not reading that context, but it just really doesn't go anywhere. Her her attitude towards Karun doesn't seem to be, you know, there there is that moment where she's sort of conflicted and she says, yeah, I kind of wish if he was going to die, he wouldn't come back at all and it'd be nice and clean. But from that point on, it really doesn't doesn't really drive anything. There's no there's no plot complications from it. It's just kind of, and that's no, what they do in the it, Invaders. It it's, it's, it's the it's it the adds, melodrama. It you know, it's just here's some people, here's their real life, and oh, and there's alien stuff going on in the background. That, that's that's what's kind of going on here. It 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 is. No, 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 because it's not it's not separate from that in a way. Because what we took what we're concerned with is the fact that here is someone who appears to be the man that she was married to and yet he's not and so it's important her her reaction to that is much more important and the fact that neil then chooses to do something with that that is much more complicated than simply the the kind of devoted wife i think adds a lot more interest to that i'll agree the whole the whole Briscoe Judith thing is less interesting, but then I we didn't get to see most of that play out. Other than, oh yeah, we don't know, get to see it play out with, with David Tennant. So right. So I mean, it, it is. I'll I'll concede that it's perhaps they act differently around each other, but it's not in the script that I can see. I, one thing that I will give them this, I think I, I kind of in a way when I read through it and they did the flashback to the spacecraft. In a way, I was kind of disappointed that they did that because I thought by ne- we never see in person Victor Karun. At the first time we see him, he stumbles off that craft. He is the alien. And, and you know, within very short time, they're noticing, you know, his face is still not quite right. But we as the, and this is the, what I thought was brilliant, we as the audience don't know that. We, we never saw him before. Therefore, if they say he looks different, okay. He looks... They, obviously, they know who he is. So he doesn't look that different. But they didn't have to do anything in special effects. They didn't have to put a, you know, slightly bulby nose on him or, or <laughs> you know, draw his ears back or, you know, just do something subtly different so that from when you saw him before the ship and afterwards and they say, you know, he just doesn't look right. And you kind of go, yeah, he does kind of look different we we just take it as red and and go and i it might have been undermined by the flashback because we would have seen karun they show him on the rocket launch right when they show the film and we actually see that but the picture is so blurry and so dark and so distant that you couldn't tell and you could be believable but i think if they actually restaged what happened inside the spacecraft you would have noticed that Karun looked the same. I don't know. But I, I kind of like them leaving it in the imagination. but Or just in the audio. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I, I thought it was, it was unnecessary to flash back because we'd got, we'd got so much of it from the deductions. 
mm-hmm. and yeah we'd got we'd got that little bit of audio which i did think was very very effective but everything else came then from their discussion around what they thought had happened and their impressions of it and i i agree to to then go back and do the flashback it's at best it's kind of unnecessary uh, yeah i guess it might be more interesting than watching karun sitting in the chair listening to the tape but i don't know it's hard to pick on something you can't see it may have worked beautifully i don't know one thing i i should say uh i mean how quaint the idea that britain made it to space first <laughs> uh, that's that's just kind of cute <laughs> that's like when your kid said you know your little toddler says i'm gonna race you to the fence dad and win you're like yeah no <laughs> it's like you're not but okay that's cute <laughs> but but the british space program the official british space program was founded in 1952 so i suspect that that may be partially what got uh neil on this they didn't they didn't do anything until 1962 but uh they i guess they started developing a longer than a year to put a rocket into space yeah they started developing the first satellite in 59 the aerial one and they launched it on an american rocket in 62 they've never had any ambitions for crewed space flights at all um no no astronaut corps, no nothing like that. They didn't even start funding manned flight to the ISS until 2011. So, you know, the the idea, not just the idea of Britain getting there first, which, you know, hey, they got German scientists too after the war. So it's possible. But th- there, there was never any really idea of sending men into space. So I, I do think that was a little... Even if it had been the Russians instead of the Americans, it still felt more... Uh, realistic um, but hey it's a british show about british scientists and a british doctor so I'm, I'm okay with it i just i did just get a little chuckle when i realized this was supposed to be the absolute first flight into space not just not just britain's first flight into space or an early flight is this is this is the first men in space period like okay well all right <clears throat> they didn't even send a dog or a monkey first to see if it would be eaten by a space alien. That, that's that's irres- that this, was the irresponsible would, part. I was going to say when did when did the first flight, which was oh, I always forget the name of the dog. Laika. Laika, thank you. Was that fifty four? Died November third, nineteen fifty seven. I'm guessing okay. that's probably very shortly after they launched. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> probably. You know, it's not one of those ones where a eh, dog lived for three years up there in orbit and then died. Yeah, it's probably within a, a, a very, uh, <laughs> very quick time. Yeah. So, I mean, even then we hadn't put we hadn't even tried putting a dog in space at that point. So I, I let's face it. I mean, science fiction of the era was all about sending people. They would not actually be thinking of the logical thing, which would be to send a lab rat first and find out if it was going to die at least writers wouldn't necessarily hopefully the scientists and presumably the the effect would have been the same if they'd sent a dog the dog would have come back and started merging itself with cacti so yeah the, the the main issue would have been that they would have had to have you know when they when they first of all it 
wouldn't necessarily have had quite the same emotional impact, their concern over the dog. But then when the dog emerged from the rocket ship, they would have to go, oh, Fido looks a bit different. Yeah. Actually, you'd have well, to have also, two dogs. You'd have had to have two dogs in there, three dogs in there, wouldn't you? So and change different. their spots, yeah. No, I, I, uh, the worst part would be in part six when Quatermass has to go into the abbey and start barking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, Good point. I know, Good point. let's try yeah. to talk to this dog in the language it understands. Yeah, so, I mean, it is, the, the human piece of it is is key. But, uh, I mean, I don't know that I have anything else about this. It's obviously very good. And <laughs> I am just, it's a crime against humanity that they didn't record the whole thing. I, I can't, I can't understand that. It would be one thing if you... Not difficult to understand. You you drew the analogy of, you know, they didn't used to record theater. Well, you know, they can now, and they often do, not every performance. But, you know, and at some point, they're doing TV, and they've never thought of recording it. And at some point, then they've... Or they don't... Well, first they're doing it, they don't have the technology to do it. Then they've got the technology, and they haven't thought of it. And then they've thought of it, and they've got the technology, and... In this case, I think, I think they didn't do it. Misunderstood the order in which that that goes. I think it's more that they thought of doing it and then they had to develop the technology. This is very early experimental technology. It didn't work very well. But it wasn't bad. I didn't think it was that bad. I I'm still absolutely astonished by how good Quatermass and the Pit looks. Yeah, and I guess. That's kind of what they were aiming for. That's the standard that they expected. Well, this is a long way off that. I mean, to 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 progress that far in four years is 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 really quite astonishing. But I, I, you know, in the end, I think what you've got to, although it's hard not to feel a sense of entitlement as a fan in 2021, you're not someone who they were ever thinking about the 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 creative. The creative impetus behind this whole project was to broadcast a live story to an audience on a, on you know six particular nights in 1953, and in that respect, it was a hundred percent successful. The recording was 33 percent successful, but I don't think that's a black mark against. Any anyone involved in the in the program on the creative side, or even you know, in terms of the doing the technical experiment, the fact that they've done it, I you know, I'm just I'm grateful that we have those two episodes. In, indeed, I'm grateful that we have the script because, as I've mentioned before, Avengers fans don't have even the script for a load of episodes that were junked, let alone the the, the audio, like a lot of the Doctor Who. So, it I I deeply regret the stories are missing but i don't i don't think that you can attach any kind of bad intention to anyone involved in in anything at the time because I, I don't it was a to, different world i don't have to attach a bad attention to him i mean obviously quatermass was doing a perfectly fine thing and he nearly destroyed the world and yet you know that's that makes him a monster I, I, these people were were trying to well if you but if you they think had the a crime against humanity they had they had the intent they had the intent to sell this overseas that is why they started recording it and somehow yes. somehow somebody sitting somewhere in a conference room after episode 2 said 
eh, never mind. That because is they the didn't, decision. they didn't. Yeah, they didn't think it was. They didn't think it was good enough to sell. They were but they were going to sell right. it to Canadians. They'd have watched it. Or There's a fly lands on the camera in episode two. I mean it. Yeah. I okay. I I don't think you can argue that this is great quality reproduction. I think you can definitely make the case that this is extraordinary quality television. And also, and the, they already knew it was it, doing it, really It's well. compelling, however badly it is technically presented, but. That 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 doesn't necessarily mean that that would have been understood at the time. I just I it's very easy to be to to look at this with the benefit of hindsight. I w- oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall or on the camera uh, when they made that decision. What, what was the, I mean? They already knew that the, it was doing really well. Three million viewers. Well, if and, you, okay, if you if if you, you want, know, if you want to argue two, that like, someone is. If if you think someone is culpable for making a decision that has deprived us, then the interesting question to ask is morally, is there any difference between that decision not to go ahead and record when they felt that the actual recording quality wasn't up to it, or the decision when they considered remounting the last two-thirds of the story, possibly in a slightly condensed form, and filming that so that they would be able to combine it with the two episodes that they had in order to do a repeat. And they decided not to. But should, you know, should they have... Was there a moral obligation on them to do that? I think it's interesting that they would consider doing the last four episodes remounting instead of remounting all four. All six, uh, you mean. Or six, yeah. Sorry. Uh, 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 well, and, and you know, the the other question to me is, did they, had they recorded any other shows? prior to this so in other words they they should have known what the technical quality was going to look like because unless they quite they literally didn't. never ever had recorded a show before and then they put they did these and they go oh hey that didn't look as good as we thought it would look it's like how how do you not know what it was going to look like how, how did you not Be, well, do experiments with that? that how did you not do experiments before actual the live day and and go, you know, maybe if we put some uh, put some shading over this so we don't get glare off of the lights or, you know, whatever. I, I, I find it. I would love to know about that. If anybody knows listening to this podcast, if anybody has a, a, a more detailed analysis of that particular piece, please let me know what the heck was going on. <laughs> so, no, I do. And and you you know you, your answer is there in the question. Yes, yes, yes. They hadn't. Yes, this was a new experimental process, and the the further information that you can find is in the Steve Roberts article um, on the Doctor Who restoration site, which is primarily about the filming of or the restoration of Quatermass and the Pit. But it does refer to it does refer to this process in connection with Quatermass experiment. And they had not used it on anything else before this. That that it right. was a it was a brand it was a brand new experimental process. I, I'm curious as to when they started doing it in the United States, because I I know a lot of the shows, but I'm not sure what the dates are. Jack Benny, I Love Lucy, things like that, where they were recorded through this. What do they call it? Kinetograph or something like that. Don't quote me on that one, but basically recording a camera a camera recording a camera of the of the show but anyway 
because it doesn't really matter. Quatermass experiment. I, I don't have anything else on it. I I um I was interested in the fact there was a 3D cinema in it. Uh, again, I suspect it's something that's probably cut out of the 2005 version, oh, yeah. but very much um, of its of its time. Well, although actually, I guess you know there has been a recent revival of <sighs> spectacles for watching 3D television. But this, the, you you get a sense from the script that this was actually quite a big deal, and you 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 see the screen as it's shown what it looks like without glasses and what it looks like with glasses and that would have been really interesting do you think think we actually got to see that yeah it's described in the script yeah yeah so you you get alternate shots between what you would see wearing the glasses and what you would see i thought they were describing how the woman was reacting to seeing it with but yeah maybe maybe that would be interesting to find out um I, i i i more interested in the fact that that bit of script is of course neil making uh making his point about how he doesn't write science fiction and that's the kind of crap he doesn't write <laughs> the, you know i mean it's it's you mean satirical. a bit like the, yeah yeah what's what's the episode of beasts where it's about the the rubber suit monster guy oh yeah yeah uh dummy dummy it, yeah exactly yeah. that he it, it's that kind of dialogue again when they put it up there it's like oh yeah that's dad yeah that, I guess that's that the is point interesting because yeah it, yeah it, he's he's showing all the kind of special effects i i was wondering if there yeah there was some kind of metaphor going on about um bit you know about seeing it through the glasses and not seeing it through the glasses and making sense of it and not making sense of it but i haven't quite fully managed to unpack that in my in my brain as yet the the other the other, i mean the other thing was how much i, I mean what it's one of the things when you watch near you're always thinking about how the how, how the stuff he writes has, has just echoed down through all of these other things that we've watched over the years and the way in which he's telling this story about a a space alien, but he's telling it without actually having a little green man or anything. You know, the, mm-hmm. the space alien comes in the in the form of a a biped, a very much human looking biped, and then kind of progresses in the story through all this kind of really rather effective body horror stuff, and you know. There's just there's just such a lot since then that uses those same tropes. Although, oddly enough, <laughs> the thing I was sitting there watching it going, you know what? It's Megloss that owes the most to this one, isn't it? <laughs> That's probably an homage. Because it was that scene... It was the scene with the cactus where he grabs the cactus and I was thinking, aha, that's where they got it from. It's quite possible. Not. It's quite possible that that was in their mind. I mean, I've heard that a lot of writers for doctor who have seen quatermass uh been influenced by it over the years so oh yeah, yeah sure yeah. well maybe maybe this was a maybe that was a conscious a conscious thing because yeah it's uh it's a cactus and it can possess people so <laughs> why a cactus well maybe this is the reason it's a thorny problem um on that, on that, I'm going to leave it there. 
Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at two episodes of the Japanese TV series Ultra Q. First is Goro and Goro, story of a giant ape and his pet man. And second, a present from Mars, where an Earth space probe to Mars comes back with a present on board. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.